This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me on the line from Western North Carolina is Chris Smith, and he's the author of a very interesting book entitled The Whole Okra, A Seed to Stem Celebration. Chris, welcome to the journal. Thank you so much, Walter. Happy to be here. And uh, I can tell from the accent that you're not from Spartanburg, South Carolina. This is very true. I am I'm not even from America. And I usually get people to guess, but you already know. I, I, I grew up in England, northwest England, just north of Liverpool. How does a Brit fall in love with okra? What was your first experience with okra? Because we can talk about a lot of southern boys and girls who grew up with okra, and the first taste is not always the best. That is very true, and, and it was true for me as well. I, I was visiting uh, the Southeast States in, I think, it, God, this was a long time ago now. I, I think it was 2004 I came over here the first time, and um, a, a friend of mine kind of took us to a southern greasy spoon just outside of Clayton, Georgia, and I'm almost certain he he did this as a joke. He kind of like ordered a side of fried okra and and passed it across to us and said, "Oh, you got to try this. You got to try this. It's like a southern delicacy," and um, and it was one of those. I I think it's one of the reasons why so many people don't like okra because they have this as a first experience and it was you know just probably old oil and super slimy on the inside, gooey, not like good okra slimy. Anyway, it was just it was just terrible, and um, and all of us were like, "What? What is this? What is this?" And, and did not enjoy that first experience. So I, along with many Southerners, I think had a bad first experience with okra, which is unfortunate. Sadly, your description: a lot of small restaurants use frozen okra, and it usually, to me, is big. They have taken big pod okra and sliced it up, and that makes it tough, not only slimy. So. Um, yeah, the worst of both worlds, right? Tough and slimy. It's like, yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, the frozen, some, something's lost in that process. And I guess if you don't have the oil hot enough, then like the breadcrumbs become saturated with with that old oil. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to do it wrong, um, which is no, no service to okra. Well, okra is not unique to the American South. And that's one of the things that I learned in your book, I always knew about the West African connection and what have you, but it's it's everywhere. So why don't you talk about that? Because, in fact, the names of okra, I think it's on page 17 of your book, because I'm going to let you pronounce some of these things. I, ca- I can't do Hindustani. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's so okra definitely arrived in the Americas via the slave trade, so direct connection to West Africa. But before that, then okra has kind of like a botanical origin in East Africa, Ethiopia, um, and or Asia, interestingly. Like, it's not completely confirmed where okra originally came from. But because of that, we find okra grown you know, across the tropical world, and it's developed its own kind of unique personality in a lot of these places. So in Brazil, they call it quiabo. In a lot of kind of Bantu, Akan languages in West Africa, then we have like some sort of derivation of the word gumbo. It's like kigumbo. Um, So that's obviously where we get the word gumbo from in terms of our southern okra stew soup type dish. That is very popular in in the deep south, and then once we get into Asia, India specifically, it, it's a India is one of the largest is the largest okra producer in the world, and in India, okra is called bindi, and so people might recognize like bindi masala. Uh, we have a lot of um, kind of southern Indian restaurants cropping up these days where they have versions of bindi fries as fried okra, and so yeah, just a real versatile crop ac- across the kind of culinary tropics, which is is well worth exploring if, if you're locked into like a southern mentality of okra, which is a good way to enjoy okra. You, you can always broaden your horizons by looking to other countries' cuisines. In your native land, they called it lady's finger. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if England is the best um, 
the, the best authority on okra. Uh, you can't really grow it in England because we don't quite get hot enough. And so this, apart from the, the large Indian population, so we have a lot of um, Indian food and okra obviously finds its way into dishes there. You don't generally see a lot of okra in England, certainly not the way you do in the southeastern United States. If you've seen okra growing, and I, in, in years past, I have had okra as a decorative plant in, in my garden. But okra is a member of the, of the mallow family, and it's got a lot of cousins that people might not realize. Yeah, it's a really impressive family. That Malvaceae mallow family is, is, a, is a pretty big family. And so some of the more distant relatives that surprise people are things like cacao, which is the ingre- main ingredient in chocolate. If anyone's ever traveled to Southeast Asia, then there's a, a fruit called durian fruit, which is, you know, fairly widely eaten, but known to have a very strong I was odor. Say, that stuff stinks. <laughs> That's another way to put it. Yeah. There's, when I was in, um, where was I? I? I think I was in Thailand and I saw there's literal like signs on signposts that have a picture of a durian fruit and the classic red circle and a cross through it. So you're not like literally not allowed to take it on public transport because of that smell. But there's a lot of good things you can do with durian, like okra. But as we come closer to home, then a lot of people recognize okra, at least when they see it as a plant, uh, and the flower specifically as a relative of hibiscus. So all those beautiful ornamental hibiscus plants that you you may see across the south, that's a very, very close relative to okra. And um Okra has that same beautiful hibiscus-like flower. And, of course, in the swamps, the mallow itself. And it's kin to cotton, right? True, yeah. I left cotton out. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's uh, related to cotton. And, and again, you see that in the flower. Um, the cotton flower and the okra flower is pretty close. There's a, a crop that's becoming a little bit more popular in the south called roselle, where you, you have this, um, some people might recognize red zinger tea is made from the calyx of roselle. Uh, in in Florida, they call it the Florida cranberry. You can make like a cranberry sauce from this real delicious deep red calyx. And, and that's very closely related to okra. Um, and then the marshmallow um, is, is a mallow. Originally, the root was used to make that kind of like gelatinous, sticky the original marshmallow. Uh, it's obviously got to a point now where it's much more of a chemical synthetic production process. I don't think they use many actual plants in that process anymore. But originally, the marshmallow plant, the roots of that plant was used to make marshmallows. Well, you, you mentioned your first experience with okra, and you've got a number of interesting chapters, one of which is, is how to purchase okra. And I'm just going to share when my wife and I still had a place on Edisto Island. There was a great local market there, uh, and, of course, they had okra. But you could see folks from off who came there, and they always went for the biggest pods, <laughs> whereas yeah. my wife says if it's more than about three inches, she doesn't want to look at it. But the folks from up north thought the bigger the pod, the better it was, and so, of course, they would have had a lousy experience with okra. Those tough, those big things are tough. They're best made into dried flower arrangements. Yeah, yeah. What, what, and they don't have to get very big before they get that stage, right? Uh, and I had that experience. We run a small community garden here where I live, or, or a few doors down from where I live. And even in that garden, people come and they've not, they've not seen okra growing before. They've not really experienced it much. And I was, I was away just for one week and I came back the next week and one of the, the garden volunteers said, I, I took a, lo- a lot of that okra home and I couldn't, I couldn't even get a knife through it. It was so terrible. And I, I thought I better eat it because I'd harvested it. And she said she couldn't even swallow it. And I was just like laughing and going, oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> it, it gets so fibrous so quickly that it, it really can get to a point where it's not very edible. So yeah, your, your wife is spot on. If you can get that young tender okra, then that's definitely the best stage to eat. The, the fresh green pods, at least. There are other yeah. things you can do with the older pods, but putting them in a gumbo or trying to fry them is not, not what you should be doing. There are many ways to, to cook okra. Our personal way, the personal way that we, we prefer here is she steams it. Now, growing up as a kid, it was boiled, and so that was really slimy. I didn't dislike it, but I didn't like it. But it, she just steams it, and and that's it. No sauce, nothing. It's just slightly crisp and 
wonderful to eat. Now, how long does she steam it for? Uh, not that long. So just to kind of warm it up a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I hear I hear that from a, a lot of people. I, actually, South Carolina people, and I wonder how how a geographic that is. Um, I know one person that told me that he he cooks up a, a pot of rice, and then right at the end, when the rice is just about done, puts the steaming pan over the the hot rice and throws in the okra. Or even one person told me that they threw the okra right on top of the rice and then put the lid back on and it just finishes steaming on top of the rice. And, yeah. and that was that was the dinner. That was the way they ate it. And yeah, I think if you don't overcook it like that, then it you keep a lot of that kind of flavor of the okra. Like you say, some of the, the kind of crunchy texture that I like about okra, but just warm it through enough to, to make it you know a, a nice component of that dish. Have you ever heard of cooking okra with butter beans? Now, you talk about cooking okra with tomatoes, but this is an, another uh, South Carolina country boy raising the issue, okra and butter beans. Okra and butter beans. So indirectly, um, one of my uh, co-hosts of the okra podcast that we put out there, uh, Rebecca White, and she actually lives down in Florida, but she her family's from the Charleston area, and she has a an okra soup dish that she really likes. And that's got butter beans in it. So that's the main way that I've heard of butter beans and okra coming together is in some kind of like soup type arrangement. I, I don't know if you've got another another uh, way that you do it. Chris, you have you have okra podcasts. How many times have y'all made <laughs> run that by folks? Um, we, we we literally separate the the word, so it's okra pod cast um just just to make sure we're ramming home that joke um, I, i'm i'm sorry <laughs> alfred and i here we're, we're talking about when I, we saw that uh we both got a guffaw <laughs> good so um now okra and tomato soup is something that's a longtime favorite in south carolina in fact interestingly in the late 18th and early 19th century supposedly the best way to cook it was obviously on the back in the back of a fire but in a Catawba clay pot to have the true, as one recipe said, the true Charleston okra tomato soup. <laughs> that sounds delicious. And, and it, the, the okra tomato combination is, is like absolute classic. I, the, um, Chef Virginia Willis wrote a book called Okra, and it's a collection of okra recipes, uh, which is actually, I think it was put out by... Um, University of North Carolina Press put that book out uh, a few years ago, and and she she looks at different recipes across the world and notes that almost every culture has some kind of okra and tomato combination just because they work so well together. Well, you don't have to do it as soup. You can also have rice and put okra and tomatoes on top of it instead of gravy. I mean. Yeah, that's one of my favorite, actually, go-to kind of quick summer recipes. You know, you get an abundance of tomatoes in, in, you know, July, August. You get an abundance of okra, and it's just so quick and easy just to slice those two vegetables up and, and literally just pan fry them uh, so that they go kind of just those flavors meld together, kind of like you're steaming, not, not too long on the okra. You don't want it to start falling apart, but retain some of that crispiness, but then the the tomatoes, that acidity in the tomatoes kind of cuts through a little bit of the mucilage, but it still melds together. You can add sweet peppers in there. You can do seasonings of choice, but it's just a very light kind of like soft take on succotash, I guess, where you don't have to put too much thought into it. This year I started putting field peas in, just like fresh field peas, fresh shelled field peas. And you can throw anything into that type of dish and it just feels like, you know, every bite is a mouthful of summer, and it's really, really delicious. Well, since you mentioned field peas, you you have a recipe in here called Limpin' Susan, which you said is not is it a derivative of Hoppin' John or? Yeah, it's it was described to me as like Limpin' Susan. If you wanted to personify that person, what like in various texts is described as like the wife of Hoppin' John or cousin of Hoppin' John or some kind of relative of Hoppin' John. And the two dishes are kind of connected um, and loosely, certainly in terms of their Charleston origins. 
And yeah, Limpin' Susan is, is a fairly classic okra dish. Right. I think that one came from Chef B.J. Dennis, who's, you know, Philip okay. and, um, and And what is in, what is in Limpin' Susan? So Limpin' Susan is kind of, uh, um, it, it's another one of these uh, kind of sauce, okra saucy type dishes over rice. And, and again, like Hoppin' John's, there's lots of different ways to, to do it. So you can kind of like mix and match the ingredients, but usually it's got the okra. It's got either dried shrimp or fresh shrimp. I think the one that I included in the book includes a little bit of bacon and, and then it's with a, a kind of a tomato type base. And, and it's just, again, I use a wok or a pan fried dish that's served over rice and, and those flavors kind of meld together. But I, I think the shrimp is a pretty critical component of that, uh, which again is that kind of West African tradition of, of dried shrimp, dried okra, so you can make these winter meals over rice to be quite healthy and hearty. Chris, we have to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Chris Smith about his book, The Whole Okra, A Seed to Stem Celebration. All right, Chris, let's get back to your your first experience. You're you're a Brit. You're You're traveling here, and you have your okra experience. What made you decide to settle down and become an okra farmer? <laughs> I, I would describe myself as an okra enthusiast that grows a lot of okra as opposed to an okra farmer. Or maybe I just farm lots of things and okra is one of them. But but what brought me to America is is my wife. Uh, we My wife is from South Carolina, actually Columbia, South Carolina, and had come to England to study on the same master's program as I. So we kind of met there and then bounced around a little bit and ended up deciding to get married and settle in North America. So we ended up in Greenville, South Carolina first and and did the whole wedding thing. And one of my wife Bellamy's friends came to our wedding shower and gifted me a dried okra pod. And I was a gardener and getting more into seed saving. And this dried okra pod just kind of fascinated me because the, the pod itself, when they go long and woody, are just full of seeds. Like probably you can get as many as 100 seeds out of a pod. And she had this story that went along with this dried okra pod of how she had got the seeds from Rosman, North Carolina, and then had grown them herself. And they'd probably crossed with another variety and she'd saved those seeds. And now she was passing these seeds to me. And I've always felt that the gift of seeds is a real weighty responsibility because you, you're literally compelled to then grow them out yourself and continue the heritage of those seeds. And so as soon as I got my own opportunity to have a garden when we moved to Asheville, North Carolina, then I, I went ahead and grew out this variety that in my head I was calling Rosman Wedding because they came from Rosman, North Carolina and then were gifted to me as a wedding present. And that first year that I grew okra, it was it was phenomenal. It was my first real experience with it in terms of like growing it as a plant and not just eating it at that greasy spoon. And I had all sorts of things in the garden that year. I had tomatoes and squash and peppers and, and the classic garden. But by the time we got to August, then, you know, all the brassicas like the kale and the collards were eaten up by cabbage worms, the squash, there's vine borers and powdery mildew and downy mildew and everything wanted to kill the squash, the tomatoes. I don't know why we even talk about tomatoes, you know, late blight, early blight, septoria, um, vine cutters, hornworms, everything wants to kill the tomatoes. Um, and then there's deer and rabbits and raccoons and all these crazy things that you don't get in England. Um, and so, yeah, the garden was just, you know, my first year was a bit of a mess, but the okra, the okra just continued to blow my mind. It was tall. It was beautiful. It was productive. I loved the pods. And as I started to research how to use them, there were so many different ways to cook and eat okra. And that, that second experience with okra, when I grew it myself and really developed a relationship with it, that's when I truly fell in love with it as a plant and as a food. Well, you, you mentioned all the problems with your, your garden and anybody who tries to grow vegetables, particularly in South Carolina, under understands. But <laughs> but you are a green gardener, so you didn't get out the seven. You didn't get out anything to kill the bugs. Isn't no, that right? that's, that's true, yeah. I, I So at the moment, I run a nonprofit called the Utopian Sea Project, and, and a lot it's kind of grown out of my work with okra and part of what we're doing is trying to create these resilient food systems that can thrive 
in southern conditions. So we're saving seeds and adapting varieties and really trying to, I guess, train the plants to work in the environment that we have instead of trying to change the environment with chemicals and sprays and pesticides and and all that type of thing. So we, we don't spray anything on our plants and then we see which plants survive and then we save seeds from those survivors and try and continue that adaptation process. So, Chris, how many varieties of okra have you personally grown? This is what blew my mind, among among other things about your book. Yeah, well, well, the book is now three years old. It was published in 2019, and I've continued to take this deep dive into okra. So, so at this point, I I've kind of lost count to be honest. I, it's definitely over 200 different varieties of okra, but one of the things that we've started doing in the last year or two is taking varieties that we like and kind of mixing up those varieties. So doing some cross-pollination with different varieties and effectively developing new varieties of okra. So now I have a lot of seeds that have come from various crosses and getting to a point where with these new varieties, I'm just creating kind of hundreds and hundreds of potential genetic combinations that could lead to all sorts of new and interesting and tasty types of okra. All right, but once you start that hybridization process, you've got to keep doing it, right? You you can't take the seed from that hybrid and think it'll continue, right? Yeah, you're right. You're right. So if, if when you buy a hybrid in the store, then that that seed has been crossed the year before by somebody in, in controlled circumstances. We're very interested in kind of open access seeds. So what we're doing is either making that cross and then a process we call stabilization, where we would select for the traits we want over, you know, maybe five, six, seven years, and then have a variety that is is stable and you could save the seeds and, and get something predictable. Or even more exciting, what we've started doing is kind of accepting that you don't always need absolute uniformity in a variety like not every plant needs to look the same and so allowing these real open mixes of genetics to continue and having these really diverse populations of okra where i could send you a packet of these seeds and every plant will probably produce something totally different but beautiful and delicious but unexpected and surprising at the same time and people are responding really well to those really broad mixes so they're technically hybridized but they're so diverse that it doesn't matter and you can continue to save seeds yourself and and just see what that population becomes based on your own selection preferences okay let's talk about city gardening and i've got a 12 by 6 foot plot how many okra plants could i put in that or should i put in that are you going to fill the entire 12 by 6 with okra yeah okay so when I plant okra, I, I tend to give it 12-inch spacing. So if you were going to fill that entire patch, you could actually get quite a lot of okra in there because you could probably do, you know, three or four rows of okra, 12 plants deep. So like almost 50 plants of okra, which yeah. would give you plenty of fresh eating, but also, you know, a good amount to save for whether you wanted to pickle it or freeze it or dehydrate it or, or whatever winter preservation you want to do with it. So that, that's a lot of okra, 50 plants for a family. Yeah. I, I just was curious as to how, really to the spacing out of the plants. So you put 12 inches between a plant. Yeah. And that, that would be fairly dense in there if you did 12 inches. But if you've got pretty good soil, then the okra could definitely withstand it. If you were doing it in a block planting like that, then those okra in the middle of the block might be a little bit um, challenging to harvest because you'd have to kind of jungle your way into there. Well, and that gets to, uh, we've already talked about the slime. What about the spines? Uh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, Have we, you had personal experience with this? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. It is itchy. There's no two ways about it. If you harvest okra for any length of time in short sleeves or without gloves, then uh, there's these dense trichomes on the leaves and sometimes on the pods, and they... They're literally there as a defense mechanism of the okra against pests, and and they work against humans too. So you get this really intense itching if you spend a lot of time in an okra patch. Um, and anyone that's experienced it understands the uh, 
the intensity of the okra itch. So I, I harvest long sleeves and gloves, and it's a fairly easy way to avoid that itch. But I have done it without just to have that full experience, and it's it's pretty intense. What about Clemson spineless? So Clemson spineless uh, as a variety is is bred to have no spines on the pod, but not on the leaves. So even your spineless varieties or smooth varieties. And there's some varieties that are described as velvet. There's a white velvet and a red velvet. And they, they have the spines, but they're really soft and downy, so they don't irritate you. But all those pods will still have it on the leaves. So there's not, not really much avoiding it, I'm afraid. But, but actually, Clemson spineless, which was developed in the 1930s, was one of the first attempts to make okra more user-friendly, right? Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. It was certainly one of the ones that got more um, uh, attention when it was released. Um, there were other varieties. If you look back at the old seed catalogs, there were other varieties being released in that time frame with similar intentions. But yeah, Clemson Spineless definitely is one of the more well-known varieties. Well, we've talked about the two things that turn people off for okra. There's the slime and there are the spines. But you save okra slime, and you've even got recipe. You take it as a, I don't know, a tonic? <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the slime itself is, you know, part of what makes okra a really healthy thing to eat. The way I like to make people see value in it is on the market at the moment, you see things like... Um, aloe juice, which is, you know, from the aloe plant, which is really expensive to buy a bottle of this aloe juice that people take for gut health. A lot of people know that things like chia seeds and flax seeds are really good for you because they have that same kind of like mucilage in their seeds that gets released when you eat them uh, or you make these chia puddings. So there's a lot of like kind of maybe fancy foods out there that use the slime and, and sell it as a real strong health benefit. And, and okra pretty much has those same properties. Uh, it's just that people go, ooh, yuck, okra's slimy. But they say, oh, aloe, it's slimy and really good for you. So there's, just, there's a marketing problem here. So with the okra, you can take the pods. And, and this is one thing you can do if those pods that you're growing in the garden get a little bit too big to be good for fresh eating, that kind of like fibrous stage where you wouldn't want to cook with it. You can take those pods and kind of loosely break them up or even put them into a glass of water whole. And if you just leave the okra pod in the glass of water, then that slime kind of begins to exude from the okra pod and thickens the water. And then you can drink that effectively, and it needs a better term if people are going to do this, but okra slime water is what you're drinking. There's not really much of a flavor there, but I like to think of like it's water with personality. It's got a little bit of heft to it. And... um, and yet, all those polysaccharides that constitute that mucilage um, are what give you those health benefits in terms of gut health. And there's other microbial, antimicrobial properties to that slime, which have been used in the medicine industry and that type of thing to have good health benefits. In, in using okra as food, it's not just the pods, which people, you, you talk about, eat, you eat the leaves. We've already talked about the, the slime. Um, that okra flowers are edible? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you read out the subtitle of the book being a, a seed to stem celebration. And, and that really encapsulates kind of a, a deeper philosophy that I hold that we should really be maximizing the food potential of the crops that we grow. And, and that idea of using the whole plant is something that okra really embodies because truly the whole plant is useful uh, the, the leaves, I think, are fantastic. You can kind of cook them down into soups and stews. Just recently for a, a group of friends that came through town, I made a, a coconut cream, kind of a, an Indonesian curry. It had turmeric and ginger and chilies and was full of, like, you know, just thinly sliced okra leaves. And then we pan fried some tilapia and crumbled it on top. And it was just a really hearty, delicious stew for a plant that, produces abundant numbers of greens and then the nutritional analysis on those greens shows that the leaves are really protein rich and so you've got a a high protein source that produces prolifically in the middle of summer in drought conditions 
that also tastes good. So the okra leaves are good to go. The, the flowers are, are beautiful and work well in teas and tinctures and kind of vinegar extracts. I saw a, a farmer uh, down in Georgia recently talking about how he harvests the flowers after they've pollinated. So you get this tight curled flower after they've pollinated and he was um, breading and frying them. And I've not tried that myself, but it really, really looked good. And it made me want to try that. Um, so the flowers definitely have a lot of good uses as well because they're, they're a big flower. And again, nutritionally, I've, I've read papers that show that some of the micronutrients in there support a lot of health claims around eating the okra flowers, even though it's not commonly done in America. So yeah, all parts of the plants uh, have some Mainly edible use is what I focused on, but um, I don't know if you want to get into talking about the fiber potential of the plant, but there's a lot of fiber potential as well. Chris, before we get into the use of fiber, there are a couple of more food things. You talk about fermenting okra and then pickled okra. Pickled okra I'm familiar with, but what's fermented okra? So fermented okra is... It's, it's actually a different type of pickling. When you think about the classic okra pickle, it's a, it's a vinegar pickle. So you're using like some form of acetic acid uh, to preserve that okra. And it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's like a sterilization process because that vinegar just kind of kills any possible microbes and helps you preserve that okra all the way through the winter so you can keep eating that okra. The other type of of pickling is a process called fermentation, which is a live process. So this lacto-fermentation process, all, all vegetables contain lactic acid. And when you submerge those vegetables in water, then it kind of triggers this lacto-fermentation. And it, it, it creates the same kind of conditions that inhibit the growth of bad bacteria because it's so full of the good bacteria. So that's the, the basic fermentation process. And you can do it with okra the same way you can do it with any other vegetables. The, the most classic one that most people will know of is sauerkraut or, or perhaps kimchi. Now with, with sauerkraut, you're always told to you know slice that cabbage really thin so that you can have lots of surface area. You massage it with some salt and you, you submerge it in water if you need to add extra liquid and it, and it ferments. If you were to slice okra really thin, then that, that cutting of all those okra cells is what releases all the mucilage. So I have actually had fermented okra that's been sliced, and I like the slime, but this stuff was like, it was a gooey mass of, I would describe deliciousness, but a lot of people would be put off by that level of slime in that fermented jar of okra. So I, I would recommend, as you do with traditional pickled okra, if you're going to ferment okra to keep the pods whole, and if you keep them whole, they don't really release much mucilage, and you can ferment those okra uh, just by submerging them in a salt brine. And, and they're really good that way because that sourness of a classic ferment, um, like sauerkraut, and the saltiness of the brine, and then you still get that kind of raw crunch of the okra. It works really well together. So, yeah, fermented okra is... Is something I really enjoy doing and arguably fermented okra with all those live uh, bacteria and microbes is is a little healthier than your classic vinegar pickled okra. Oh, okay. Chris, we need to pause a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Chris Smith about his book, The Whole Okra, and it's okra from A to Z, Incredibly. Now, okra has been growing in the American South for 300 years, and uh, during the Civil War, there were lots of substitutes that had to be made. You know, couldn't get coffee, couldn't get tea, so people made coffee out of everything. I never saw a recipe of coffee made from okra seeds, but you have a recipe for making okra coffee. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny, if, if you spend any time reading like newspapers, Southern newspapers during the Civil War period, then you see a lot of advertisements for coffee substitutes because the, the embargoes basically made coffee really, really expensive um, if it was available at all. And so there were all these different efforts to make substitutes. And, and there's multiple newspaper articles talking about okra seed coffee. And often they would headline with things like, 
okra seed coffee, the world's best Java and, and that type of thing, really pushing home that this was like an incredible coffee-like substitute. Now, obviously, it's not caffeinated, so it loses some points there right away. And every time I've made or attempted to make okra seed coffee, it's always been it's always been a little disappointing because you roast the seeds like you might roast a coffee bean, uh, and there's a beautiful nutty coffee-like aroma that comes from that process. And then when you take those roasted seeds and grind them, I just use a no- normal coffee grinder, then there's this just incredible release of pungent coffee flavors um, or smells rather. And so if you go through this process with the, the mature okra seeds, then you may, like I did, get very excited that this was actually going to be a really awesome coffee-like drink. Um based on the smells. But what I've run into every time I've tried to do one of these extractions with water and I've tried it with milk and other fats and, and none of those real rich flavors of the coffee like okra seed come through into the liquid. And so I'm always left with a fairly weak, earthy tea as opposed to like this strong, robust coffee flavor that I was expecting based on the smells. Um, so none, none, none of my attempts to make Okrasi coffee really stand up to the descriptions that you read in those, you know, early 1860s, like newspaper reports. And I think there might've been a little bit of a journalistic, um, artistic license. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of artistic license, well, um, going on there to, to beef up the Southern substitutes. But I, I guess maybe okra coffee in the 1862 might have been better than I saw a recipe for making uh, a coffee out of the dried corms of daylilies, which I think are poisonous. But <laughs> uh, I've not come across that one. A friend of mine makes um, sweet potato coffee, which is actually fantastic, yeah. uh, like kind of grated, roasted, and ground, and then steeped in water. Um, that's got a real robust flavor um, in a way that the okra seed just doesn't. Now, I would say with the okra seed, coffee, like the actual powder before you steep it in water, that if you think of that more as a flour, then you can put that in all sorts of recipes and and the coffee taste does actually come through. I, my, I've got in-laws still in Colombia and I took a, a sweet potato pie to Thanksgiving one year and I'd put like just a, a quarter of a cup in the pie crust flour, like cut it with normal flour and added the roasted okra seed coffee flour. And I had multiple people at that Thanksgiving saying, oh, did you put coffee in the crust? It's delicious. And um, and it was only right at the end that I revealed that it was okra seed flour. So it, the, the flavor is still there, but you have to use it in baked products um, as opposed to trying to make coffee. Well, if you want to make okra flour from the seeds isn't that a pretty tedious process to get enough seeds to make enough flour for use that's um yeah that's a fair point i i think i wouldn't say it's more tedious than another flour making process but you do need to grow quite a lot of okra to end up with a, a reasonable amount of seed that said you don't need that much of this okra flour because it's you wouldn't want to make an entire pie crust out of okra seed flour. It'd be a little bit too much. So I'm generally just using a quarter of a cup, a half a cup of flour. But if you watch a really good Netflix movie, you can hand shell a lot of okra pots. <laughs> well, it's, that's sort of like shelling peas, right? But yeah, exactly the same. Yeah, you just kind of, if you've got a good group of people and you just, you're chatting, then you can sit around in a circle and, and hand shell okra. We just did a farm tour this last weekend and I had people coming through visiting the farm and I had a, just a big pile of dried okra pods out on a tarpaulin and, a, and an empty bucket and people would just spend five minutes shelling okra. And I've got, a, I've got a good few pounds of okra seed in that bucket now from just people helping out. Once it gets to that completely like brown dry stage, like where you were talking, you might use it in a floral arrangement. At that point, it's really crunchy. So I don't even use a knife. I, I kind of just break it in half and the seeds fall out. Now, you mentioned okra fiber and its uses. And one of the scientists who first began to do that over a century ago was Booker T. Washington, who experimented with okra fiber. And that's, of course, one of the complaints people talk about big okra pods get, you know, they're stalky, but that's the fiber that has a lot of uses in the 21st century. 
Yeah, I, I would agree, um, especially as we see, you know, a resurgence of the hemp industry and a lot of people talking about hemp fiber, then, you know, from the studies that I've read and, and the small experiments that I've done, then okra fiber is pretty comparable to hemp fiber. The difference is when you grow okra plants for fiber, you also get all the other edible products off that at the same time. So you could be eating your okra pods all season. And then at the end of the um, growing season, when the okra pods are done, you've still got your stalks in the field that you could harvest for a, a viable fiber crop. So it's definitely got a, a lot of good uses there. And, and it's not surprising. Uh, again, earlier in this chat, we talked about okra being part of the Malvaceae family. And a, a lot of our most well-known fiber crops come from the mallow family. Most mallow plants have good fiber. And that, I'm thinking about things specifically like jute, jute fiber. Most of our cordage is made from jute. A lot of our brown paper bags have jute in them. And okra is a real close cousin to that. Your farm, um, it's not a farm. You, you said you're not an okra farmer. You are a gardener. How large is your okra patch in Asheville? Yeah. I, I, again, with um, when I was writing the book, I was definitely just a gardener. And then I did some larger trials on a friend's farm. And since then, I've launched this Utopian Seed Project, which does put me in the farm world, but we grow way more than just okra. So we, we have... You know, last last year I had about what about six or seven hundred row feet of okra, which in okra farm scale it isn't that much okra, but for a home gardener that's still you know that's probably six or seven hundred plants and a, a lot a lot of okra came out of that field, and then depending on the year and what I'm specifically trying to research, then we'll have you know small blocks of lots of different varieties or some other plots where we might be doing some of these intentional crosses to look for new varieties. I'm working on an okra seed oil breeding project at the moment. So this year I have uh, a block of about 10 different varieties from crosses that I've made of high oil seed varieties to try and develop okra as a potential oil seed crop. So it, it, it shifts every year. In, in total, I manage three farm sites and at each side, I probably only have definitely less than an acre at each site. So it's a fairly small operation, but we're working with massive varietal and crop diversity. So there's hundreds of varieties and, and almost 100 different species in those three different farm sites. With your 100 species, most people think okra comes in one color, green. That's not correct. Yeah, the diversity is really astounding. And, and actually, that was one of my motivations when I did my first kind of big okra grow out. In, in 2018, I grew about 76 different varieties of okra. And at the beginning of that, I, I suspected that I was going to see a lot of varietal diversity in the field. But there was a small part of me that was a little nervous. I was like, all these different varieties of okra that I've managed to collect are they all just going to look like different versions of Clemson Spineless, like the classic green pod? Or is there actually going to be true diversity? And um, very early on in that trial, I, I realized that my my worries were not warranted. And we had, you know, tall plants and short plants and everything in between. We had real heavy branching plants. We had big leaves or deeply fingered leaves. We had all the different types of pod shapes. You can have like deeply ridged and multiple ridged to like smooth and rounded. You can have long, you can have curly, you can have real fat stubby pods. And then there's a range of colors that go from like really pale green to the point that they're described as white or pale yellow, all the way through to really dark green and, and the different tones in between. And then there's red coloration in the pods. And again, you get a full range of colors where you see varieties named for orange to purple to burgundy to red to pink okras. And then those greens and reds can intermix. So you see green pods with red blushing on the end and that type of thing. And then all those mixes of greens and reds go into the plant as well. So you can see some plants that are just purely a pale green color and then others that are a mix of red and green in their stems and petioles and leaves. And so it's just really beautiful to see that many different varieties all together and just kind of be slapped in the face with how much diversity there is, especially when you compare that to 
a fairly unanimous opinion out there in the, in the general public, unless you've grown your own okra, that okra is really just a three to four inch pod that you see in a basket at a farmer's market or a supermarket, just that standard classic green okra. P- people are surprised that red okra exists, let alone this like incredible diversity that we've shown exists within okra. Now, the, the flower on an okra plant, generally, it's it's a pale yellow, is it not? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Like a kind of a, a maybe a creamy color, pale, pale yellow, creamy. Uh, it always has a red center. So there's a deep red center. One of my like dear wishes is to find or to develop a pink flowering okra plant. And I think that's going to be pretty hard. But there is one related species called Abelmotius moschatus that has a pink flower. So it might be possible to get that pink trait into okra, but I haven't seen it yet. Well, aren't some okra plants have a purplish tinge to their leaves? They're not just green? Definitely, yeah, yeah. That that you, you see it in the stem and in the petioles and the leaves, and you see that red in the flower as well. So some red varieties, you'll see almost like veins of red coming up and into the petal. So you do get some variation in the flower as well, and that red does kind of infect and influence the whole plant. You talked about your oil, developing okra for oil. What exactly are the aims that Chris Smith has in the next five, ten years in terms of agriculture, okra culture? <laughs> okra culture. Um, it's a good question. I... I you know, I, I did a lot of research in writing this book and grew a lot of okra, and it's really continues to be a passion crop for me. And I, I do believe that okra has a solid place in, you know, sustainable. They talk about regenerative agriculture these days because it's a it's a plant that can grow an abundance of food in, you know, drought conditions, in heavy rain conditions, without the need for a lot of fertilizer pesticides, herbicides, that type of thing. So it's, it's a really great crop to kind of showcase a, a different type of food and agriculture. But really what I've done since publishing that book uh, with my work with this nonprofit, we set up the Utopian Sea Project, is kind of take that, the, the lessons that I've learned with okra uh, and some of the philosophies that I've applied in terms of using the whole plant and, and celebrating all those aspects of it, I'm really applying that to a lot of other crops. So I've broadened my focus to look at all all types of crops that can contribute to kind of a a sustainable climate resilient agriculture in the Southeast, specifically in Western North Carolina, because that's where I'm focused, but beyond that as well, for sure. What are the crops specifically? Are you looking at tomatoes, peas, cabbage? Yeah, um, we we have a broad brush, but uh, one focused area could be described as kind of traditional southern crops. So crops that have some of those similar properties that they can grow in these droughtist conditions also deal with the humidity of the south and some of the pest pressure. A great example of that is is the southern pea versus the common bean. Like if you grow uh, like a black-eyed pea, then those plants barely take any pest damage, have incredible drought tolerance, produce edible leaves and edible pods and edible seeds, um, and are just really a fantastic candidate for for growing in the South. But most people tend to grow the the common bean, uh, and those guys are not as drought tolerant, don't like the high heat, and get taken out by a whole range of pests. This year, actually, in my field, I had a row of a classic traditional pole bean and I had a row of uh, a vining southern pea and just the difference was immense like one of them is still pumping out tons and tons of edible pods and the other one is decimated by Mexican bean beetles and is effectively has been dead for at least a month and so just seeing them side by side it's like if I had to feed myself and my family or my community which one do I want to plant a lot of the, the southern peas win every time so definitely we're doing a lot of work with those guys. Uh, we're working with collards, watermelons, melons, corn, squash, for some of the classic ones. But we're also looking at other tropical crops that could be adapted to this region. 
We have a big trial going at the moment that's looking at taro and the edible tuber that you get from taro, the edible leaves that you get from taro. It's again, just like beautiful to see it in the field right now. It's like big, lush green leaves. It's not been watered for a long time because we've had a dry spell and it just looks amazing out there. And we're getting ready to dig the roots and it's, it's comparable, if not better, at root production than potatoes uh, in terms of the volume of food material you can get out of the ground. It's got a versatility of uses. Again, like Oprah, you can look across the tropical world and find a whole host of different ways to use taro as a food crop. And we've not had to spray a single thing on it, like no pests, no diseases. It's just like pumping out food with very little human intervention. And I think that's the types of crops we're gonna need in the future. All right, Chris, um, I'm sorry, Alfred has given me the wind-up sign. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off? I think we've covered a lot of okra ground. I really appreciate the conversation. (laughs) Well, so do I. And I know your book came out a few years ago, uh, but thanks to COVID, we didn't get it on the air (laughs) when it it first came out. But it, it is a fascinating study, and... I can't think of another vegetable, oh, well, maybe greens, more identified with the South than okra, like it or not. And by the way, I like it a lot. Chris Smith, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. My pleasure. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. And folks, I do like okra, primarily steamed, But in okra and tomato soup, I grew up with it. I like it, and I know folks don't like it. That's fine. But to have this young man from the United Kingdom come to America and explore the history, the uses of a vegetable on southern tables for two or more centuries was an interesting experience. Like it or not, okra is an integral part of our culinary history here in South Carolina. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.